Welcome to Creative on Purpose Live. These conversations are about flying higher and endeavors that make a difference. Step into possibility with integrity and intention. It's time to be creative on purpose. Are you ready? Let's go. I'm your host, Scott Perry, author of Endeavor and founder of Creative on Purpose. Learn more about me and my work and grab a free copy of the Creative on Purpose handbook at BeCreativeOnPurpose.com. Let's meet today's guest. Sheila Heen, so excited to have you with us. Please tell our viewers who you are, what you're up to these days, and where we can connect to learn more. Uh, I'm delighted to be here, by the way. Um, So my name is Sheila Heen. I have been affiliated with the Harvard Negotiation Project and Harvard Law School for more than 25 years now. Um, teaching negotiation, uh, written two books, Difficult Conversations, and Thanks for the Feedback, more recently. And I also run an organization called Triad Consulting, where we work with a wide variety of both for-profit and non-profit clients, equipping leaders to sort of have the conversations um, that matter most. Fantastic. So I it turns out that I thought I got acquainted with you through Shane Parrish's um, yes. podcast, uh, The Knowledge Project. But as you were speaking on that podcast, I realized that I had read your first book, Thanks for the Feedback, as part of my uh, Ooh, yeah. NBA journey in Seth Godin. Yeah, yeah, Seth. Um, so yeah. that was back in August of 2016, I thought. And so mm-hmm. I went out, I, I bought the audiobook for Difficult Conversations and listened to that, then realized I needed something to um, obliterate with my highlighter and pencil. <laughs> oh, that's the best feedback we could get, actually. Yeah, that's, well, and it's interesting because, you know, feedback itself can be a difficult conversation, but I, oh, I would love for you sure. to just just spend a little time here with difficult conversations because I'm really interested in this um, idea. I've written some something called Wicked Conversations, which mm-hmm. was a bad attempt at tackling something similar before I collided with your work. And since you 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 had a, you have it covered, so tell us what difficult conversations are, and maybe just share a few insights onto how we can get ourselves out of difficult ones and into more healthy and happy ones. Yeah, it's a great question. Well, so, um, you know, the, the simplest answer is a difficult conversation is any conversation that you find difficult, right? So if it's keeping you up at night, if it's a repetitive argument that you are having with someone that doesn't seem to make progress or you end the conversation thinking, well, that went really well, and then nothing changes. Mm-hmm. Um if, if it feels difficult to you, it qualifies. And for me, one of the really rewarding things about working on trying to understand these conversations and handle them more effectively um, is that they're just about being human and in relationships with other people, right? So often when I go into an organization, the task is to work with their leaders, but each of their leaders has a personal life also. So often the conversations that we have, the big ahas are like, oh my gosh, this helps me understand the conflict that I'm having with my spouse or my son or you know, a friend. I, I'm walking away with new ideas about how to engage with the people in my life who matter to me. Um, and so that for me has been one of the most rewarding things because also it's my own journey, right? So... I also happen to have personal and professional relationships. And um, and so I'm always learning, uh, catching myself maybe a little bit more quickly, like, oh boy, I'm not handling this very well. <laughs> like what advice would I give myself? And I think that's one of the things that keeps it challenging, which is 
you can be a third party listening to your friend's problem and have all kinds of insight and great advice. And then when it's you, <laughs> it just feels like a mess. So um, the ability to step out, to see your own situation differently, I think is really a lifelong, a lifelong journey. Yeah, this human experiment is definitely something ongoing for sure. For sure. Some of the things that I really uh, took away from your book uh, were that we think of difficult conversations as being conversations we're having with each other, with uh, with others. Yeah. Um, but you actually deal quite a bit with the internal narratives that we're having that are fueling the difficulties that we're having with getting ourselves understood and also our ability to understand um, yeah. somebody else's perspective. And you, you mentioned kind of that, that uh, exercise of being able to zoom out a little bit. Um, what other strategies yeah. can we, can we use to start telling ourselves healthier stories so that we can then engage in healthier discourse with others? Yeah, I think that that's, um, that's really where the action is. It's in what each person is really thinking and feeling if we want to understand why a conversation is hard, we have to go beyond what people are saying to each other or often not saying to each other to what are we each thinking and feeling? What's the story we're each telling? How are we each, how does this relate to who we think we are or want to be in the world? What feels threatening about it? What, what does the situation suggest about me that's upsetting that I'm not a good parent that I've screwed this up, that, you know, this is my fault um, or I'm letting myself take advantage of so the internal voice is really the key to understanding these conversations. And what that, what that means is that if we can understand where our internal voices tend to go, because it's actually quite predictable, mm -hmm. um, what we tend to be preoccupied with in these conversations, which includes, you know, I'm going to be focused on what I'm right about and whose fault this is and why I suspect they're acting this way, like their true motivations or intentions or character. Um, it's because they don't get it. It's because they don't care. It's because they have to control everything, right? Like that helps me understand why they're acting this way. Um, that our internal voice is pretty predictable. They're thinking exactly the same thing. They just have different answers to those questions, right? Um, and so the first negotiation that I have to have is a negotiation with myself. Um, and that when we talk about integrity or trust, it's often people's perception of the gap between what I really think and feel and what I'm saying to them um, that tells them how much they trust me, right? If they think, well, you're not really giving me the straight story, um, then I'm not going to be trusted as a leader, right? Um, or as a colleague. And so the internal voice ends up being, from, from our point of view, at the heart of the challenge. Yeah, it's as I was re-listening to the audiobook um, in preparation for our chat, one of the things that I've been thinking about and writing about a little bit in the coaching that I do and other people's online programs mm -hmm. um, is this is trying to encourage people uh, to be to be more considerate, and by that I mean to to consider the other person's perspective before yeah. you try to ram your perspective down their throat. But I also feel like you know, speaking to this, paying attention to the internal narratives, we often have to be a lot more considerate to ourselves because we, yeah. even that I, I'm, I'm not convinced that we spend enough time in self-reflection that actually leads into 
personal development as opposed to self-reflection that's just fueling the the, <laughs> the the lies we're already telling ourselves. Right, right, right. Collecting evidence for why we're even more right. Yeah. Well, and, <laughs> and, and, we the and other thing, the other yeah. thing that I was thinking about with um, as I was re-listening was this idea. So you talk a lot in the book about emotions are going to be a part of this and that by pay, we have to pay attention to those. Um, and this idea, it, what, what it brought to my mind was, you know, trying to encourage each other and ourselves to be less reactive and more responsive. In other words, yeah. to not, I, I always remember, it's it's in a, a quote attributed to Viktor Frankl, but I, I don't think there's any evidence he actually said this, but the quote, between stimulus and response, there is a pause. And in that pause is your power to choose. And in your choice, lays your growth and freedom. And mm. what I love about that quote is it's not saying stop and don't do anything or stop and suppress your emotions or ignore them. It's saying, consider what's going on, what's really going on, and then provide, you know, give, gives you an opportunity to, to maybe have a more thoughtful uh, and healthy response. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. We think about that um, as being purposive. I'm not sure that's actually a word, <laughs> but we um, pretend that it's a word. Yeah. Um, in other words, to think, what is my purpose in responding in this way? What is it that I'm trying to achieve? And what response or reaction am I trying to get from the other person? Because other people are mostly reactive to whatever we do or whatever they think we're doing um, or they suspect we're doing. And, and that can be frustrating for sure, but it's also a huge opportunity. It's a huge opportunity to think, okay, before I just react, let me actually ponder each of what we call three positions. So this isn't in the book actually, but we teach it. Um, we think about skills in first position, second position, and third position. So first position, this is just like, you know, pronouns and stories, first person story. So how do I better understand myself and my own reactions? What's at the heart of this for me? How am I feeling? What's this suggest about who I am? That's why it's partly upsetting um, because either it feels totally unfair or I'm afraid it might be true, mm. at least in part. Um, what have I contributed to this problem? So the, and by the way, how, how effectively can I share my perspective and also represent my own interests and concerns here? Second position is, can I really put myself in somebody else's shoes and imagine the world as they see it and understand why they're, you know, why they see this so differently? It makes no sense to me. I think they're crazy, but what are they thinking about? What are they looking at? How are they feeling? What is it that they think this is really about? And often what I think this is about is not what they think this is about. I think about, this is about whether this is the right business solution. They think, this is about whether this process sucked and I shouldn't have been left out of it, right? And so we're just talking past each other. But if I understand, oh, they're talking about the process, that's actually a fair point. I do think the process sucked. Now we can actually get on the same page on the same topic. So we think about empathy and second position skills as the ability to really have a robust sense for someone else's perspective. And third position skills are like as an observer, as an analyst, how good am I at stepping out of it and looking at the situation and, and having some insight into what's going wrong. And just to follow up on part of what you were saying, I run into people all the time and they're better on one side of that than the other. So um, 
a lot of people are really good at asserting their view and they're terrible listeners, but there are other people who um, are actually very empathetic, but then they walk away and realize, well, wait a minute, I never stuck up for myself. Mm -hmm. Like I was so empathetic to their situation that I never said, well, actually that's not okay with me. So the first position, like understanding yourself and sticking up for yourself, what's sometimes called self-agency, how good are you at being an agent for your own interests, um, is a challenge that people have, even though actually when they represent other people, they're really good advocates for them, but they're not good advocates for themselves. Really? You you brought up a word that was probably the most profound new takeaway for me Mm. in your book, which was the contribution piece where, Mm -hmm. you know... we are we are really good at seeing how others are contributing to this to the difficult conversation. Well, there's a problem, obviously. Right, of course, yeah. <laughs> and, and we really stink at seeing how we might be contributing, even to the you know yeah. worst kind of conversations you know that we can imagine, um, the ones that are the most hurtful. But the, I love what you're also talking about in terms of the empathy piece because I think a lot about we, in in Seth Godin's programs, which which I'm active in. Mm-hmm. He he is very much about starting with empathy and the 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 ability to yeah. to see, hear, and understand somebody else's point of view. And as I've been thinking on my own and doing my own writing on it, thinking about how empathy is a, an essential skill mm-hmm. and step, but it's not the last step because compassion is actually the the next step because compassion takes you out of a one on one and and allows you to pull back a little bit, not just see what's going on and understand what's going on, but then to care enough to do something. Um, Mm -hmm. And compassion, you know, based on Paul Bloom's work is a much, is almost more healthy because where empathy can be very exhausting and kind of in one-on-one compassion is much broader and is often a more energizing um, posture than just a purely empathetic one. And, and of course, people define empathy and compassion a little bit differently and sometimes they're conflated. But that's, I, I, and I love what you were just saying about, you know, I think a lot of this starts with us as individuals first. I don't think that it's hard for me to have empathy or compassion for Sheila. Um, if I can't extend that same. You're not alone. You're not alone in that, actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yes, the, the compassion for ourselves um, is sometimes both the most challenging, but the, the most important. Yeah. Well, and it's all of this, to, I think, speaks to some, you know, I, I, I was reading your work and, and I enter, entered Seth Godin's universe and operate there, you know, through a filter of my own, which is a childhood, since childhood, I've been studying ancient Stoic philosophy, mm-hmm. which talks a lot about, you know, we are human and therefore social. We are imbued with this rational capacity that we should try to be better at using and yeah. to love each other and care for each other and, and serve each other. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it, it, that idea of, we have to build ourselves from the ground up so that we can be of the best use, you know, to our fellow beings, you know, not just in our immediate community, but, you know, for the Stokes, it was not just um, globally, but cos- cosmologically. Cosmically. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I, do, I don't want to get totally stuck. I know that you wanted to talk a little bit about writing. I just, I, I'm so thrilled to be talking about difficult conversations because your book, 
just helped. Well, number one, it took something off my plate that I was obviously not. <laughs> what, any any other requests? What else do you have on your plate? We can help. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh. Wanna, well, I got to leave a little something for me. Yeah. Um, but, yeah the, the the assertions and agency that you mentioned, I think you know that's an, a big um, topic. Uh, in in the workshops that I coach and just, you know, yeah. assertions to me are the pursuit, like a, a joint pursuit of truth instead of agendas where you're just trying to cram your point of view down somebody. So assertions are, we're going to have a back and forth that will result in a better assertion. Yeah. And, well, and, and that, that we'll put, we each have pieces of the puzzle of reality and I need to understand your pieces in order to make the picture that I understand more mm-hmm. accurate and more complete, right? We're, we're, truth seeking um not necessarily in the sense that there's an absolute truth but there's a more representative truth usually mm-hmm. to understand the complexity of what happened between us or what we should do um as we're making some really complicated decisions whether that's in our professional lives or our personal lives you know the the i had mentioned as we were hopping on talking about writing and but it's not disconnected from this at all because one of the, first of all, it took us forever to write both of these books. So let me just put that out there. They're not really that long. So it's like, what the heck took so long? Um, but it is because um, Doug Stone and Bruce Patton and I learned an approach to writing, um, working alongside Roger Fisher, uh, who's the founder of the Harvard Negotiation Project and wrote Getting to Yes, et cetera. He was our mentor and he really loved talking about writing. Mm-hmm. He really loved talking about how do you organize ideas so that they're accessible and practical and simple, but not simplistic. Um, he really cared about having sound theory, but that was actually somebody could pick up the book and it would help them immediately. And the very first um, tenant of that is that I actually have to connect with readers um, in an empathetic way. Like I have to meet readers where they're at. What do they think their problem is and how do they experience their problem and how might this book actually help? And so we run this week long um, writing retreat for people working on how to and nonfiction books. And um, it's really one of the most rewarding weeks of the year for us, just because it's a bunch of talented, interesting people who are all trying to write in a way that is accessible and immediately useful. And so we spend a whole morning on your readers felt, like who is your reader and what is their felt problem? Which the feedback book actually was a much more complicated one to figure out for us on that front because we were writing about receiving feedback. And one of the reasons there are all these books about how to give feedback is that I think that my hesitation to give you feedback is very much a fault problem. Like you are driving me crazy. You have been driving me crazy for years. Um, but I can't seem to figure out how to talk to you about it, or I've tried and it hasn't worked. And that's very much a felt problem, um, which the problem is you, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't tend to walk around the world feeling all of the feedback that other people aren't giving me. So to the extent that receiving feedback is a felt problem, it's a felt problem primarily when other people are giving us feedback that is unfair or really hurtful and upsetting. So, but that's like a small percentage of the time versus the time I spend thinking about the feedback I have for you. So that was really an interesting challenge for us to try to tackle 
um, which is how do we write this in a voice that is super empathetic, but that also gets people from a dilemma that we feel to what we think actually is going on and might help. Yeah. And that took us a long time. I mean, there were 15 years between those, these two books. Like, yeah. what the hell were we doing all that time? Um, <laughs> so uh, Difficult Conversations took us seven years to write. And uh, it came out in 99. And then Thanks for the Feedback came out in 2014. Hmm. Um, and during that time, of course, our editor is saying to us every you know, year, he's giving us coaching feedback but what's your next book? What's your next book? Um, and we didn't want to write the same book over again. So we were kind of partly waiting to figure out what is our next topic that's something new that we could really learn that would be helpful. Um, and then the second was, oh, now that we think we have it, how do we connect with the reader? Because the text is a conversation with the reader. Like I am thinking about your internal voice as you read the book while we're writing the book. Um, and trying to anticipate it and respond to it so that it feels like a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So much great stuff there. Uh, uh, finding. So I think a lot of the time in all of our endeavors, whether it's book writing or teaching or making mm -hmm. or, you know, it's, we're, we're in, we are engaged in the pursuit to make things better and yeah. we're engaged in that activity and the, our, our primary adversary is the status quo. And the status quo wins most of the time because while we recognize that things might be better, we like to know where we stand and we like to know the, what to expect. And we like, even when we are stuck in a really terrible situation, we know, because we know what's expected and where we stand, we'd rather live with that than actually push into um, you know, what might be required to make things better. And the, the, you're, you were bringing up the idea of voice. And I just know that when I really began to get back into writing very late in life, um, you know, finding my voice was just a matter of typing something every day and putting it out into the world for yep. the feedback. Sometimes the feedback was crickets. <laughs> right, crickets, which is feedback. Exactly but you're trying to figure out what to make of it or critical or yeah, it feels super risky. And I think that's also, I mean, part of it is trying to figure out who is my audience and how do I connect with them and, and what do they think their problem is? And the other part is like, who am I, who am I to have something to say? And do I have anything new to say or do I have anything people will think is useful? And I wrote that piece today by Friday, I'm going to realize what I should have said because <laughs> right? I have better insights and better thoughts. After this interview, by the way, right. if you can check in with me this afternoon, I'll have all the things that I should have said. During right, this right. Well, that's that's one of the beautiful things about the digital world is we we can revise whatever we feel like. I've, I've revised my first book on uh, Amazon at least 27 times. <laughs> yeah, and it gets better every time, I'm guessing. Right. <laughs> Although right. with the writing process is hard because sometimes I, I'll spend like a whole week reworking something. And at the end, I'm like, well, that didn't work either. Or I actually just made it worse. So that's, of course, one of the challenges of writing, which is you're learning while you're writing. Oh, like yeah. part of writing is trying to figure out what you think or how yeah. this fits together and what's missing about it. Well, 
the the you've you've touched on this twice, and I just want to completely go there. And that's this idea of starting with you, you've been talking about starting with your audience, but also having to figure out who you are. And I I am a big advocate. I've written several times on this idea that although a really smart and popular person has talked about the importance of starting with why, it's mm-hmm. actually starting with who is where we need to begin because in, until you understand what what are your guiding principles and what are your values and what are your beliefs and what are your talents and you know who where do you belong and who do you belong yeah. with how can you possibly you know derive any meaning until you, you have all that kind of sorted out it's all you know you use the word purposive and i'm totally down with um with made up words um productful is a word that we use in my family <laughs> yeah oh i like it i like yeah. it so but this idea that um you know, purpose isn't found in the work. Purpose is found through the work. Purpose isn't found in the conversation. It's found through the conversation that these are, you know, we're active participants in the pursuit of meaning and the the cultivation of meaning. It's happening as we are engaged in something that's worth our time, effort, and talents. Um, I want to, we're, we're running short on time and I, I could have a difficult conversation with you all day long, obviously. Um, <laughs> But I, one thing that I was reminded of when I was um, re-listening to your conversation with Shane um, that really touched me was your early mentor was uh, a World War II vet. And I grew up um, as a very young man in the 70s working summer jobs with uh, a whole collection of World War II vets. And those, those relationships profoundly impacted and built, you know, the person that I am. I know that Mm -hmm. just the way that they, the way that they were. And even though I had not very much knowledge or connection to their experiences, vets, um, you know, they were, there was something different about the way that they behaved in the world than, you know, people of my parents' generation, you know, that were a generation after theirs. Tell us just a little bit about um, your mentor and the, the impact that he had on you. Yeah. Yeah, so Roger Fisher, as you said, he fought World War II in both the Atlantic and the Pacific theaters and um, lost many friends in the war. And you can look at his life and see incredibly clearly, like the rest of his life was about trying to find better ways for people to handle conflict. Um, And so his passion really was international relations. And he would just open the newspaper in the morning. <laughs> and um, so I worked with him through the 90s um, and early 2000s. And um, he would open the newspaper in the morning and he'd find a conflict and he would start working on it mm. and thinking about different sides, perspectives and interests and what they care about. And he'd research whatever he could find that, you know, the internet was iffy at the best at that point um, and call up people who he knew, who knew something about it. And then he would start to formulate some advice. He like fax his advice off to people who were like, who is this guy, Roger Fisher, who's faxing me from America. Um, and every once in a while people would call him back. So he would get involved in like border disputes in Peru and Ecuador and in South Africa and, um, just trying to help people better understand the conflict that they were in and better understand their counterparts because conflict escalates and gets fed, right? Because we each are focused on what the other side um, is doing that is hurting us, killing our people, et cetera. Um, And finding a way out of that actually requires a real shift in mindset. So 
um, that was really his passion. And he was an incredibly inspirational person because he didn't really have a lens that said, um, you're not my peer until you know everything. It was more if you had a creative mind and wanted to try to help, then he was curious about your opinion. Like, he's like, hey, you want to come work on this thing I'm thinking about this afternoon, um, this dispute? And I'd be like, I, I hardly even know where that is. <laughs> like, I'm a kid who grew up in Iowa and Nebraska. I'm still like learning. But he treated you as a peer. Um, before you ever deserve to be a peer. And that also was really um, meaningful to me as a kid who was trying to figure out what I maybe had to offer. Um, and that I think was one of the gifts that he gave us, not only an incredibly rigorous mind um, for ideas and like what is good theory and good teaching but and good writing, but also just a generosity of spirit in saying like good ideas that will help the world can come from anywhere. So you better be paying attention. Love it. Sounds like Roger Fisher taught you something about your ability to contribute. That's awesome. Mm. Um, so last question, I, I love mm -hmm. to end interviews with this. What's one tip or piece of advice that you would leave our listeners with today that would help them fly higher in an endeavor where they seek to make a difference? Mm. Boy, it's a great question. I, I think that maybe what helps me is to at least once a day step back from my to-do list to think, all right, what is actually the most important thing I should think about today? And it may be something I've been dwelling on for a long time from a task perspective, like I don't know how to attack this task, but maybe the reason I'm stuck is that there's something I'm not getting about what they need from me or what might help so that I'm actually trying to set aside the urgency of the tasks to reflect on my own stuckness or their, like what is it that they're hoping for here? That I, and why is it that I'm not sure what to offer? So it's just rethinking something, sort of backing up from it. And if, if I do that once a day when I, and I notice I'm stuck on something. That's the only thing that tends to get me unstuck. And that's often a creative process because my usual, my usual approaches are not helping either me or them. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Well, Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Sheila and I really appreciate you lending us some of your valuable time and attention, and we hope today's broadcast motivates you to lean into an endeavor that matters with greater curiosity and courage. You can learn more about Sheila Heen and her work at Sheila. Uh, probably triad consulting or triadlearning.com. But I'm super easy to find. Sheila Heen, H-E-E-N. Google me. There's only one. <laughs> Great. Well, it's always great to also see you at BeCreativeOnPurpose.com. And now go out and make a difference and keep flying higher. Sheila Heen, thanks so much for being on the broadcast today. Thank you. It's such a pleasure.